Again, our topic for today is abortion in Judaism. I've been asked to address this topic. And um, now for decades already, um, I guess we could say more than decades, probably at least 100 years, um, the abortion debate has raged in this country. Um, one side of this debate supports abortions as protecting a woman's right to choose. The other side opposes abortions protecting the um, fetus's right to life. And um, there are two very strong sides in this country who have um, argued it out um, time and again um, throughout the last couple of decades. Um, many people, perhaps most people in this country, hold positions that are somewhere in between the two poles. Um, today in this country, as we all know, abortion is legal um, based on the Supreme Court rulings um, before a child is viable, and that is throughout the United States. Um, and the exact time a fetus is viable um, may be somewhat debated, but until a fetus is viable, it is legal throughout the United States uh, based on Roe v. Wade and, other, and later um, Supreme Court rulings. However, many states have rules creating certain limits either to the um, preconditions or limits to abortion clinics or to performing abortions in different ways. Now, the truth is this debate on abortions has gone on for thousands of years with many societies allowing or even encouraging abortions, um, particularly in earlier um, pre-monotheistic uh, societies. And um, while others, particularly in most Christian societies, have strongly opposed abortion um, already for thousands of years. So our discussion today is going to be, what is the Torah's view on the subject? Now, before I get to the Torah's view on the subject, interestingly, while in Christian sources, even in old Greek and Roman sources, in um, Chinese and Indian sources and other sources, there have been in almost every society great debates about the ethics of abortion. Um, in Jewish law, interestingly, there has not been much discussion until fairly recently about the abortion debate. While, as we'll see, there are important sources in our early sources, and it is clearly sourced, but there hasn't been extension, ex extensive discussion. Now, um, it should, we should note that we, um, in Judaism have a very large um, library of literature called tshuvot. Um, the English word for it is responsa. Or essentially, rabbis over the years, or Jewish scholars over the years, for the last 2,000 years, have been asked halachic questions. And often those questions are sent to a scholar in a different city, a different country, and many scholars have published books of their answers to different questions. And based on this extensive, extensive literature, we have thousands and thousands of books of Chuvot covering almost every Jewish society in the last 2,000 years. And um, based on this, we can also deduce that the Chuvot provide their own history of Jewish life. We know what people did, what foods they ate, what they wore, how they acted. We have a lot of detail of what people did simply found based on the halachic questions they were asking. But interestingly, throughout the years, we don't have a single tshuva, we don't have any responsa until really the 17th century or 18th century dealing with the question of abortion. 
And um, presumably the reason is because the question simply did not come up. Now, why did the question not come up? Um, presumably it was not even ever under consideration. In other words, Jews did not really consider the issue because um, it, wasn't really this, it wasn't something that they even considered um, the possibility of performing abortion and therefore it wasn't generally discussed. But that doesn't mean that Jewish law does not take a position on it. Um, and as we'll see, we go back to the Torah itself and going back to the Talmud, there are clear positions, as we'll see, um, on the abortion question. Now, before I answer the question, or address the question at least, um, it's important to note that this, the goal of our class is not to judge people and the decisions that they have made in the past not to judge people who have chosen um, when faced with the possibility of an abortion to make an abortion or chosen not to terminate a pregnancy, not to judge their decisions in any way. That's not our goal over here. Um, we cannot undo the past, but rather our goal over here is to help you understand the Torah's position and hopefully give you a little bit of limited guidance for the future. Although as we're, we will see, we are not going to make clear um, rulings in complex cases, um, but at least to give you some background to understand the Jewish position on the subject. So our goal is not to change the past or even address the past, but to educate ourselves um, for the future. Now, in this country, the abortion debate has always been framed, um, probably by marketing experts for both sides, as a debate between the right to um, choose or a woman's right over her body, and the right for life. So one side is called pro-choice, the right to choose, or essentially a woman's control over her body, including a fetus inside and her pregnancy, or on one side and on the other side, the fetus's right to life. Now it should be clear that the very concept of someone having the right over their body is foreign to Judaism. Judaism does not believe that anybody has any right over their own body because our bodies are given to us on loan by God. The fact that it's my body, the fact that it's your body, does not give you the right to cause it any harm. You have no right to do anything harmful to your body whatsoever. It's not yours. It's God's. It's just on loan. And like anything else that's lent to you, you can't cause it harm. You can't ruin it. You can't, um, you can't cause any harm to your body. So you don't have the right to hurt yourself. You don't have the right to cause yourself any harm. You don't have the right to choose, so to speak. You don't have the right to control your body. So in Judaism, from a Jewish perspective, it would be wrong to frame the question as a pro-choice or pro-life. Is it a woman's body that she controls or is it a, child, a fetus's life? It would be a wrong way to frame the question in Judaism. The question in Judaism would rather be, may we, or are we sometimes even required, to terminate a pregnancy, or are we forbidden from terminating a pregnancy? So it's a question of whether we should 
or may terminate a pregnancy or may not terminate a pregnancy, but there is no question that nobody has the right to control their own body. There is no such right in Judaism. We do not control our bodies. Yet the question remains still, is may one terminate a pregnancy? Should one in certain instances terminate a pregnancy? Is it ethical to do so? Is it not ethical to do so? The question still remains a question, but it must be framed differently in Judaism. Before I go further, any questions or comments? So before we attempt to actually address this question, we need to firstly briefly explain how halacha or Jewish law works. Very briefly, we've done some classes. We did a course uh, a year and a half ago on the, uh, going into this in great detail. The Torah has given us 613 commandments that are very clear rules of what we may do, what we may not do, and what we must do, what are we, we are required to do. In general, Jewish law follows not the actual written word of the Torah, which we believe is just a cryptic document, but rather our oral teachings, the teachings that Moses gave us at Mount Sinai, which were only cryptically recorded in the written word. Those laws are clear over what is required, what is allowed, and what is prohibited. We also have a series of what's called rabbinic law. When we say rabbinic law, that should not be confused with rabbis, as we know rabbis, but rather what we mean is laws that were enacted in the first few centuries of Judaism by the Sanhedrin or the Supreme Council of Judaism while it stood um, during the days of, while our temple stood, we had a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Council, and the first few centuries of Judaism going back two and a half thousand, three thousand years, um, rules that were made by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council. All those rules, whether laws given to us by God through Moses and transferred or, tra transmitted orally, um, written down, or rules made by our Sanhedrin, our Supreme Council in the early period of Judaism, are all considered Torah laws. They're all part of halacha, part of the Jewish law that we, got, we as part of our covenant with God should be following. Now, over time, as in any legal system, new questions arise, new situations. It is impossible for any legal code to address every possible situation that can ever arise. Since such a thing is impossible, therefore what will always happen is new situations will arise and then scholars, judges, in this country lawyers, have the role of attempting to apply the current question or the current situation to the existing law. So in Jewish law, scholars, rabbis throughout, over the history have, as new questions have arisen, Scholars and rabbis over history have attempted to apply existing law to new questions. And of course, it's, um, new scenarios and new questions are always going to arise. And so it is always the role of Jewish scholarship and rabbis to apply the laws 
to these new questions that arise. Now, sometimes when these questions are arise and are resolved, sometimes scholars essentially reach a very clear consensus. And it's very clear as to what the answer to the question is, which Jewish law it can be um, fit into. Is it permitted? Is it forbidden? Exactly what the law is. Sometimes the consensus is reached at immediately. It's clear cut. Sometimes there is a debate in the, when the question first comes up, but over time it is resolved and there is a consensus. In general, in Jewish law, once a consensus is reached in halacha, in Jewish law, that is then binding, that is final, that is absolute. Sometimes, though, in applying the law to new questions that arise, there can be different views, different opinions as to exactly how to apply the law. And sometimes no consensus is reached. And in an instance that no consensus is reached, you would then have multiple opinions as to how to resolve this particular halachic question at hand right now. And so when we have those questions as to exactly how to resolve this particular halachic question, what one would do is one would go to a scholar a rabbi who is an expert in that particular halachic field, in that particular field, um, who understands the, both the field itself, if it's a scientific field, um, you'd have to understand the scientific field, um, as well as the um, opinions on both sides and the complex discussion, and they would have to make a ruling. Um, now, for, for simple questions that come up all the time, um, a regular rabbi should be trained to be able to make such simple rulings for more complex questions, especially in um, less common scenarios, particularly, say, in medical questions. A regular rabbi, such as myself, would not be competent enough to be able to make a ruling in such a, such a question, um, but rather they would go to an expert. Sometimes I like to call myself, I'm a GP, a general practitioner rabbi. Um, I deal with the, um, or you could call it the family rabbi. I deal directly with people's direct issues, but any more complex halachic questions, I would have to refer them further to somebody who actually has expertise in the field. So when you get into this gray area where there is no consensus, you would have to, or you get into a question that is not already clearly addressed, you would have to then, um, and generally any complex question will not have been addressed with all the relevant um, issues to that case, um, because no two complex scenarios are alike. And so, um, therefore, you would have to defer and ask somebody who has expertise in the field. So, getting back to our question of abortion and what the Jewish law says about abortion. In a complex issue, there are, will generally be three different parts. There will be things that are clearly forbidden, there are clear laws, there is a clear consensus, things that are absolutely forbidden. Then there will be things that are absolute, we could call that the black. Then there will be things that are absolutely permitted or even required. Either a clear law or a consensus of what is permitted, what is required, um, that we could call the white. And then there is what we could call the gray area in between. Area where there is some debate. 
where there is some complexity, where no consensus has been reached. And as we're going to see in this abortion question, we will have all three. We will have the black, things that are clearly forbidden, the white, things that are clearly permitted or even required, and the gray, a large, here we're going to have a large gray area in between where there is no clear consensus. Even then, in the gray area, it's important to at least understand the different shades of gray and understand the different perspectives um, to have general understanding of the topic. So the Torah tells us that in Exodus 21-22, if somebody kicks a pregnant woman and she miscarries, the Torah says the offender must pay the value of the fetus. So he's caused damage. So it would be similar to breaking someone's arm, breaking someone's leg, blinding someone. You have to pay the value of the damage. How we evaluate that is a discussion of its own, exactly how to evaluate damage um, to, a per to a person, to someone's body. But the Torah says... Someone um, causes a woman to miscarry, hits them, kicks them, and causes her to miscarry. The offender has to pay the, for the damage, but is not killed for, the implication is, is not killed for the murder of this fetus. If the woman is killed, if the mother is killed, then that is considered murder, and there is a death penalty in the Torah for murder. Some time ago we did a class on capital punishment in Judaism. So, now, it's therefore clear from the Torah that killing a fetus is not murder. I should mention that Christian translations of the Torah um, translate this, these verses a little bit differently than our Jewish translation, than the way we have it in the Hebrew and our Jewish tradition. They therefore tend to come up with a different conclusion. Of course, it is our, our Torah. We had it first, and so therefore we know the correct translation. So the Mishnah therefore says that killing a newborn child, um, even a newborn on the day of birth, is murder. However, killing a fetus is not murder. It is murder to kill even a newborn child. It is not murder to kill a fetus. The Talmud therefore tells us, if a woman's life is in danger during childbirth, if necessary, one, if the only way to save the mother is by killing the child, one must kill the child, the fetus, to save the mother. Because killing the fetus is not murder, we must kill the fetus to save the mother, if that is the only way to save the mother's life. However, once the child's head has come out, and the child is now considered born, alive, now one cannot kill the child to save the mother. Why? Because we never kill one person to save another person. We never, you, the Talmud uses the argument, we don't know whose blood is redder or whose life is of greater value. So you can never kill one person to save the life of a, another person. 
So once the child is a person, once the child is born, the moment the head comes out, the, um, one cannot kill the child to save the mother. However, until that period, if the only way to save the mother's life is by killing the child, one must kill the child, the fetus, to save the mother. A person, a fetus, because a fetus is not yet considered a person. And this is true for many parts of Jewish law. For financial laws, a fetus is also not considered a person. A fetus cannot inherit prior to birth. Um, a fetus cannot, one cannot make a transaction, give, such as give a gift to a fetus, since they do not exist yet. They are not yet born. So um, a fetus is not a person. Killing a fetus is not murder. There is no capital punishment for killing a fetus. And we must kill a fetus if necessary to save the life of a mother. So that is clear from the Mishnah, from the Torah, from the Mishnah, from the Talmud. Any questions before we go on? Rabbi, there's a term out there called a partial birth abortion. I'm not necessarily certain what that is. I assume that that means that the head has crowned and is either partially revealed or all the way revealed. You've already addressed if it's already revealed. What about this other case? I don't know the details of the partial birth abortion. Um, and I think that term itself might be a controversial term to start with. Um, in other words, it's used by opponents of abortion to describe certain types of abortion. I don't know how it's used. Once the head is out, they're considered a person. If the head is just crowned, they are not yet considered a person. So, yet at the same time, we at the same... Uh, Susan, did you want to ask something? So then, yet at the same time, there is also a clear prohibition to kill a fetus. The Talmud in Sanhedrin, when discussing the seven Noahide laws, there are seven laws that are, or values, that are, were given to Adam and then to Noah, and required for all of humanity to follow. One of those rules are murder. Um, all of humanity are required, we believe that it's a universal ethic, that all of humanity must keep, um, must um, keep the value of a person, respect human life, and forbidden from killing another person. The Talmud points out that in the verse in Genesis where God commands Noah against murder, it says, Shofech, this is in Genesis 9.6, it says, dam ha'adam ba'adam damo One who spills the blood of man in man, his blood shall be spilled. The Talmud says it can be read as dam ha'adam ba'adam. One who spills the blood of man in man. This means that spilling the blood of man while they are inside another man or inside another person. And this refers to a fetus prior to birth. A person inside a person is also forbidden. And so it is forbidden, the Talmud says, as part of the Noahide laws of respect for human life, not murdering. 
Tosvos, um, a classical um, commentary on the Talmud from the um, 13th century, um, or a, it's really a compilation of French and German scholars from that period, points out that, it is for, that if it is forbidden for a Noahide, for all of humanity, to kill a fetus as part of the prohibition, as an extension of the prohibitions of... Um, uh, uh, the Noahide prohibitions of not killing, um, then of course it is forbidden for Jews as well, since Judaism does not allow us to do any of the things forbidden to all of humanity. So as a rule, it is clearly wrong to kill a fetus. So while we said it is not murder to kill a fetus, and there is no capital punishment, there is no death penalty, and there is... Um, and we know that the um, uh, uh, and we must kill a fetus to save the life of the mother. Yet it is clearly in halacha in Jewish law it is clearly wrong and forbidden to kill a um, to kill a fetus. Now, if killing a fetus is not murder and there's no capital punishment, and we would kill a fetus to save the life of the mother, yet it is forbidden. The question is, what is the reason for this prohibition? What is the source? We found a biblical source from this, for this prohibition, from the seven Noahide laws. But which of our commandments would it fall under? What would be the reasoning for this prohibition? Is it part of the murder prohibition? It's not murder. Or is it a different type of, if it's not murder, what exactly is the prohibition? So here, Jewish scholars have debated over what the prohibition of killing a fetus prior to birth actually is. There are a number of different approaches that are taken to explain this. There are four basic approaches. Some say that given that the source in the Talmud is from, um, is from the Torah speaking about murder, it is essentially a lesser form of murder. It is what we could call a partial murder. It is not a full murder to kill a fetus, but it would be a partial murder. This could be in one of two ways. Either it could be a biblical prohibition. In other words, a prohibition that came, when we say biblical, we don't mean necessarily written clearly in the Torah itself, but part of our oral tradition taught to Moses, but not murder itself. And it would be similar to um, when the Torah prohibits certain things, such as eating not kosher. Um, if one eats certain unkosher food, there are penalties in Jewish law when we had a, um, when we had a Sanhedrin, we had a Supreme Council, and we had a, a society that lived on, um, that enforced Jewish laws, there was a penalty. But one only received the penalty if one, for most non-kosher um, consumption, if one ate an olive size, an olive, the size of an olive of non-kosher food. However, if one ate less than an olive, there was no penalty. One did not get punished. Yet it was still prohibited. So there can be prohibition without punishment. In the same way here, it is not a full murder, it is what we could call a partial murder. Or it is still murder, but not 
as severe as a regular murder to the extent that there is no capital punishment and that one can kill the fetus to save the life of, and one must kill the fetus to save the life of the mother. Another approach to this perspective where it is a lesser form of murder is that it is actually not included in the biblical prohibition or the prohibition taught to Moses um, about murder at all. Rather, this, the prohibition of killing a fetus, is what we call a rabbinic prohibition. It was a rule that was enacted later by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council in the early days of Judaism. And as many rules in um, that the Sanhedrin enacted, they found a biblical source to support their rule. And so it wasn't originally taught to Moses, and this, uh, but it was rather um, it was rather a rule made by the Sanhedrin at, during a later period. Now, this is important. This important differences in halacha between these two, because while we are bound, um, a Jew is bound by both laws, give, rules given to Moses, and rules made by our Sanhedrin, by our Supreme Council um, in the early days of Judaism. We're bound both by what we call. Torah law and and rabbinic law, yet there are differences in the way we treat Torah law and rabbinic law. So that's one perspective that it's essentially a lesser form of murder. A second perspective as to why killing a fetus is forbidden, that it is part of the prohibition of not wounding someone. It is prohibited to hurt another person, it is pro prohibited to cause someone physical harm. If one does, one has to pay um, for that harm. But there is a prohibition, one of our 613 commandments, not to harm another person, not to harm an individual. That prohibition applies not only not to harm another person, but also not to harm ourselves. As we mentioned before, the Torah prohibit, the to um, in Judaism we believe that our bodies do not belong to us. They are on loan to us from God. We do not have the right to harm our own body. So part of the prohibition of chavala, of um, heart wounding someone, includes the prohibition of wounding ourselves. And so here in this instance, we would see the fetus, according to this perspective, we would see the fetus as essentially an extension of the mother. The Talmudic term for this that we use in some laws are uber yerech imoy, that the fetus is essentially a part of the mother, a limb of the mother. And just as you cannot cut off your arm or cut off your finger or cut off someone else's arm or someone else's finger, it would also be forbidden to destroy a fetus, um, whether oneself or somebody else's, as part of the prohibition of causing a wound, chaval. A third perspective is that it is part of a prohibition of the Torah of shichva um, zera or destroying seed. This is not one of the 613 commandments, but the Torah is clear that a um, man is forbidden from masturbating outside of sexual intercourse, and that is because it is forbidden to destroy um, what can be potential a potential child. And so if destroying seed and the details, I know um, it may come as a surprise to some people, but the details of it um, are definitely for a discussion of another class. Um, 
But the um, some say that if one is forbidden from destroying seed, definitely one would f- be forbidden from destroying a fertilized embryo or a fetus um, that is a seed that is definitely on its way to becoming a person. A fourth perspective, and somewhat similar to the third, is that the, the prohibition over here is destroying a potential life. The Talmud says that we are allowed to desecrate the Shabbos in order to save a fetus. We know in general we can desecrate Shabbos or we can really break almost any law in order to save a life, to save a human life. So we can desecrate Shabbos, eat non-kosher, break our fast on Yom Kippur, eat chametz on Passover, or almost any law in the Torah, with a handful of exceptions, in order to save a life. The Talmud says that not only a human life are we allowed to desecrate any law to any law to, in order to save a life, but also to save the life of a fetus. The Talmud says we can desecrate the Shabbos. Even though, as we said earlier, it is not considered a full life to the point that killing it would be murder. The reasoning the Talmud gives is, Chalal alav Shabbat echad, desecrate one Shabbat, so that they keep many Shabbatot. So better to desecrate one Shabbat in order that they keep many Shabbatot. In other words, because this fetus will in the future keep Shabbat, therefore we can desecrate Shabbat for this fetus. Or this can be extended to any commandment, and as we said, uh, um, and even for a non-Jewish fetus, that which we saw was also forbidden to destroy, um, that because a person will keep God's commandments as an, as, um, as in, during their lifetime, therefore it is forbidden to end a fetus's life even before they are born because you are destroying a potential life that will potentially do good one day and you are stopping that good that they will do. So because of that, because you are stopping the good they will do one day, you are destroying a potential life. Therefore, it is forbidden to destroy the life of a fetus. So we now have four different perspectives as to why it is forbidden to destroy the life of a fetus um, when not saving the mother's life. Either um, it is a lesser form of murder, which this can either be a biblical prohibition, um, where it's essentially a partial murder, in other words, a prohibition given to Moses, or possibly a prohibition enacted by the Sanhedrin at a later stage. Um, Or a second option is that it is a prohibition of wounding. The fetus is an extension of the mother, a limb of the mother, and destroying the life of the fetus is wounding the mother. And she's not allowed to even do it to to herself, uh, kill her own fetus because one is forbidden to wound themselves. A third approach is that it's an extension of the prohibition of destroying seed. And a fourth, probi- a fourth perspective is that it is destroying a potential life. Now there is another detail in how we see a fetus prior to birth. The Torah tells us a woman who is a Kohen a woman who is the daughter of a Kohen, who was born a Kohen, may eat truma. Truma is certain foods that are permitted only for Kohanim to eat. 
However, if she marries a non-Kohen, she gets her husband's status, she becomes a non-Kohen, she may no longer eat Teruma. The Torah tells us further that a woman who is a Kohen who has a child from a non-Kohen, and that child now will f- follow their father's status, since um, for Kohanic law, it always follows the paternal line. So now as the mother of a non-Kohen, she is forbidden from, she loses her Kohanic status as well. This is true even if a woman is pregnant with a child from a non-Kohen, as the mother of a future non-Kohen, she is also um, no longer considered a Kohen and cannot eat the trim or the special Kohanic foods, which we no longer have. This only, we only ate these foods when the temple stood. The Talmud tells us that a woman in her first 40 days of pregnancy um, may eat truma, a daughter of a Kohen, a Kohen who, a woman who was a Kohen in the first 40 days of pregnancy, where the fetus is from a non, the father is a non-Kohen. Um, in the first 40 days of pregnancy, she is still considered a Kohen, since the embryo is just maya ba'alma, just water. It's not considered an embryo yet. So what we see from here is that a fetus does not have any human status for the first 40 days of, pre- of pregnancy. Um, similarly, there's a rule that a, um, there's certain laws for a Bechor, for a firstborn. A firstborn, one must do a Pidyon Haben, with a special ceremony. We did a class on it last year of redeeming the firstborn, a first, for a firstborn son. If a woman had a miscarriage, their next child is not a firstborn son because they came after a miscarriage. However, if the miscarriage happened within the first 40 days of pregnancy, then the child born afterwards is considered a firstborn son because that, that embryo that, that was miscarried within those first 40 days is not considered to have been a child. Again, we see an embryo within the first 40 days is not a child. Now, to be clear, when we say 40 days over here, we mean 40 days from conception. In today, the way the medical community counts pregnancy, they count pregnancy from the first day of the last menstrual period, which is usually on average 14 days before conception. So when we say 40 days over here, that would be actually 54 days in um, our current medical terminology. Um, or well, or seven weeks and five days, two days before the eight-week mark. Um, so some would argue, therefore, that if the prohibition of killing, uh, if the prohibition of killing a fetus is because it's an extension of the prohibition of murder, either as a rule given to Moses or a rule enacted later, um, some argue that it would not apply to a fetus within the first forty days, because. It's not yet a child. Not yet, um, it's not yet considered a child at all, as we saw from these other laws. Now, this, of course, would only work if the reason for the prohibition of killing a fetus was that it is an extension of murder, or possibly if the prohibition was wounding the mother, in other words, um, wounding one of her limbs. However, 
If the prohibition was destroying seed, definitely it is a fertilized seed. Um, or if the prohibition is that it is a potential life, definitely over here you have a potential life that will one day become an actual life. Um, and so therefore, because at least according to some of the perspectives, um, according to some of the perspectives, um, even in the first 40 days it would be forbidden to destroy the life of the embryo. Therefore, generally, there is a consensus among all Jewish scholars that address this question that aborting a fetus even the first 40 days is forbidden unless there is a great need. So it is now clear that in general there is a blanket prohibition in Jewish law to perform abortions. However, there are exceptions. And the exceptions will depend on many different, on exactly what the situation at hand is. And so what I would like to do in the next couple minutes is go through some common issues that come up, reasons why people would like to perform abortions, and see what Jewish law would say about it. Would it fall into the black zone? Absolutely forbidden. Would it fall into the white zone, permitted or even required? Or will it fall into, the, fall into the gray zone where there may be different viewpoints among different scholars um, and it may um, depend on some of the details or which halachic um, ruling one would follow? So let's begin with when the, when the mother's life is in danger. If, there is a, if the pregnancy poses a clear or a likely danger to the mother, now, this is very rare. It is very rare. I heard from one um, OB that they have never seen it after 50 years as, or 40 years as an OB. Um, so um, it's, it's very rare, but it definitely does happen. Um, unfortunately, the most common for reason a pregnancy would be um, harmful to the life or um, a clear danger to the life of the mother um, would be a woman who has a severe heart, lung, kidney, or other um, major organ disease. Um, and the pregnancy may likely um, exasperate that disease to the point that it will likely lead to her death. A woman with severe heart disease, with severe lung pulmonary disease, um, kidney disease on dialysis, for example. Um, in those instances, a pregnancy may, depending on the situation, likely lead to death. Other rare examples include um, uncontrolled bleeding from a woman's uterus, where the only way to stop the blood would be by clamping the blood flow to the uterus, which would, in effect, kill the fetus, um, which is, again, a very rare but does happen. Um, another scenario is a woman who has cancer or some other disease where the treatment itself will definitely kill the fetus. In all of these instances, it is definitely in Jewish law, as we saw before, one is required to kill the fetus to save the life of the mother. One is required to kill the fetus to save the life of the mother. Now, there are different forms of abortion. Um, some abortions, some forms of abortion may be better than others. Um, it is better to um, do it indirectly. In other words, through a, allow the body to do it itself through ingesting a pill when possible um, or injecting something when possible rather than um, 
using instruments to actually kill the fetus, but in such an instance, one is required to save the life of the mother and kill the fetus. In cases where a woman is sick, um, she is um, terminally ill, and she will die regardless, but killing the fetus can extend her life by days, weeks, or months. Even there, one is required to kill the fetus because we are supposed to do all that we can not only to, um, not only to save a person's life, but even to extend a person's life. Now here there may be variation in details depending on um, how likely it is that killing the fetus will extend their life, uh, depending on um, how long um, uh, how, how far along she is, there may be a lot of variables over here. But as a rule, even to extend a life, we would be, if we know for certain, um, or most likely that we would be able to really extend a life by killing a fetus, we would be required to do so. In cases where a woman is sick, and carrying the pregnancy will likely exasperate her illness, but would not likely kill her, even if it would possibly kill her, but it would not likely kill her, over here there is some debate. And it depends very much as to what the reasoning for the prohibition of killing a fetus would be. If killing a fetus is considered, if the reason for killing a fetus is because it is wounding, causing a wound to the mother, we know Jewish law allows one to wound a person in order to help them, in order to heal them. You're allowed to, call, you're allowed to perform a surgery and cut off a limb or a part of a limb in order to help save the person, even not to save their life, even to help them um, medically. So we are allowed to cause a wound for medical purposes. So if the reason was only just because a woman is not allowed to wound her body in order to, uh, if she is sick and um, the carrying the pregnancy would harm her in some way or another, then it would simply be a medical procedure to help the woman um, by, um, by aborting the fetus and it would be permitted. However, if we take one of the other perspectives, which many scholars do, um, that it is forbidden to kill a fetus, either as an extension of the prohibition of murder, as part of the prohibition of destroying seed, or because it's a potential person, then if a woman is, uh, is going to be harmed as a result of the pregnancy, but not likely die, it would be forbidden to terminate the pregnancy. Um, and so, again, over here, we would, this would be one of those gray areas where there would be a difference of opinion among, modern, among scholars um, of the last 100, 200 years, and um, as well as along modern, among modern scholars. In a case where a woman has a severe high blood pressure, where pregnancy can then cause blindness, it will increase their blood pressure concerns, um, and it can then cause blindness or deafness, but not, will not be life-threatening, then there are those that argue that we have a rule that we can transgress, but we don't transgress Torah law um, for medical purposes unless a life is in danger. We, don't trans, uh, tr we would never transgress the laws given to us by Moses from God in order to help a person medically if no life is in danger. 
However, we are allowed to break any rabbinic law, any law made by our Sanhedrin, by our Supreme Council in the early days of Judaism. We're allowed to break any such law in order to save a limb, to save someone from blindness, from deafness, or to save mm -hmm. other limb, even if not life-threatening. So according to those that were of the view that there is no, that this rule was not given to us, from Moses on Mount Sinai, the rule of not killing a fetus. But it was a rule enacted by the Sanhedrin, by the Supreme Council of Judaism. One would be allowed to terminate a pregnancy in order to save um, a woman from, um, to save from blindness, from deafness, or from some other serious, um, serious um, injury. Um, now, a woman who has clinical depression or other psychiatric problems, schizophrenia, bipolar, other serious psychiatric problems. Um, again, if the, um, according to the view that it is simply, um, uh, that the reason for the prohibition of killing a fetus is because it's causing a wound. Um, so again, to heal a woman, uh, to heal a person, you would be allowed to cause a wound. However, according to the, all the other views for clinical depression or psychiatric problems, unless carrying the pregnancy is very likely life-threatening, which is rare for psychiatric problems, um, unless it is very likely life-threatening, it would be forbidden to terminate the pregnancy, according to those other views, that the reason for the prohibition of killing a fetus is either an extension of murder, spilling seed, or killing a potential life. What about if the reason for the abortion is not because of the mother, but because of the child themselves? Someone wants to abort a child because a child has uh, um, a child is born with Down is going to be born with Down syndrome. They um, have their chromosomes um, are not are, uh, are warped and so the child will be have down or have another severe handicap or deformity. So in general, Jewish law would forbid killing a deformed child. It is forbidden to transgress any prohibition because of a deformity. Even the argument, even if we would say the prohibition is wounding the mother, one would not be able to wound the mother to... Um, and the life of a potential child with deformity. There wouldn't be any halachic justification to cause a wound for the mother, definitely if it's an extension of murder, definitely if it is an extension of... Um, definitely is because... The, or if it is because the um, of destroying a potential life or spilling seed. According to those views, though, that within the first 40 days of pregnancy... Um, we are lenient because it is not considered murder within the first 40 days of pregnancy. It's not yet considered a child. One would be allowed to abort a child for severe deformity within that time. But that, again, would only be according to those views, so it would be a gray area. Um, most, though, however, would say that one cannot um, perform um, an abortion even within the first 40 days. Uh, but we definitely would be more lenient um, looking at the other issues at hand. And usually there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of different details and uh, issues that can be brought into one question. In other words, it can both involve harm to the mother and the child um, and so forth. Um, and so we'd be more lenient within those first 40 days. 
Now, for a child that has Tay-Sachs, which is a genetic disease common in um, Jewish uh, among Jews, um, where the child um, will um, become sick soon after birth and um, suffer tremendously and die within the first couple years of their life, or some other um, deformity for which the child will not be able to live for very long and will just leave, live a very short life of suffering. So some would say that it is still forbidden to terminate the pregnancy. It is forbidden if it's an extension of murder um, or um, even for a um, to wound the mother, to um, stop a potential harm later, there would be to the child, um, there would be no, it would still be forbidden to do so. However, there were scholars, notably Rav Waldenberg, um, who was a, um, not one of the greatest Jewish scholars in medical ethics in the 20th century, um, and a number of others say that in this instance, where the child would not live regardless, um, the child is what's considered a trefa, and even post-birth, it is not considered, a, if one would kill the child, although forbidden, it would not be considered a full murder. And, um, and therefore, um, it would be permitted, at least in, uh, in the first 40 days, to perform, an, or, um, or even in the earlier part of the pregnancy, prior to viability, to perform an abortion, to abort that child. Um, definitely according to the view that says the reason why we cannot, um, why we cannot abort a fetus is because of their potential life. And we explain potential life means they will follow God's commandments. If a child will never reach adulthood, if a child will never get become old enough to follow God's commandments, then that, that argument is no longer there. Therefore, one can argue that with at least within the first 40 days, Rav Oldenburg argues in such an instance, it would be permitted to perform an abortion. What about when a child is an illegitimate child? A child that is born um, due to rape, um, or for that matter, due, due to a um, woman who has had a child outside of marriage. So here it depends exactly how the... Oh, yes, Susan, Rabbi, go ahead. I have, I have to leave, I'm sorry. Okay, thank you for okay. joining us, yes. Yeah, it was really great, I wish I could... Uh, but somebody's at the door and I have to go take okay, care of it. Okay, there will be a recording okay. of it, um, I'll put on the... Um, I'll put on, I'll put on the podcast shortly. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. So when a um, child is an illegitimate child, either due to rape um, or the, a mother made a, made a bad choice um, and, um, due, uh, and had a, an illegitimate child. So if the child is a result of an adulterous relationship, in other words, the woman is married and the child is from another father, or it's a child of incest, then the child, when born, has the halachic category of a mamzer. Um, now, a mamzer has specific laws. They are forbidden from later getting married to another Jew. Some have argued, uh, notably Rav Yaakov Emden, a great um, 17th, uh, 18th century scholar, that in the first 40 days it would be permitted to abort, since... The Torah's rule is, and this is if the mother, not if it was a rape, but if it was willing, if a mother willingly committed adultery or incest um, and had a child as a result, 
there is in Torah law a death penalty for adultery or incest. Now, we don't actually carry out that death penalty. We no longer have capital punishment in Judaism. There was in biblical times, and even then it was very rare to ever be carried out. However, since there is a potential death penalty, therefore the child is, and the child is an extension of the mother, um, a woman, the Talmud makes it clear that a pregnant woman who is guilty of capital punishment is killed um, with the fetus. The fetus is killed as well. So since in theory the fetus um, has um, a death penalty hanging over it as the extension of the mother, it would not be forbidden from performing an abortion, particularly since um, this child will be born and would be a mamzer later, and we do not want to have um, mamzerim or children that are born from incest or adultery in the Jewish community. So um, if in event that it was a child born from adultery or incest that was willing, where the mother was a willing participant, Rav Yaakov Emden permitted an abortion. However, most were of the, disagreed with this. And most disagree and say that a child, even if they will be a mamzer because of um, because they are a child of an adulterous relationship or incest, it is still forbidden to abort at any point. Definitely, and this would it would not matter if the child was the mother became pregnant due to her own choice that she made, or due to uh, it would not matter, or if the child was born due to um, rape. Uh, she became pregnant due to rape. And the same would also definitely be for an unwed woman, even if she's a teenager, so long as the pregnancy poses no clear danger to her, um, that it would be, once she becomes pregnant, it would be forbidden to abort if there was no danger to the mother. Yes, Cheryl, did you want to ask a question? Yes. Is there any ethical prohibition to a married couple who get pregnant when they definitely don't want a child, but they were just careless? Very good question. So um, let's move on. That is our next um, issue that we're going to discuss. So now the most common reason for abortions is due to either financial or emotional reasons. Either people are not prepared financially to support a child. They say they don't believe they don't have the ability to support a child financially or emotionally they do not want to raise a child um, whether you call it careless i don't know if that is the right word um, i would say rather bad decisions that were made um, in other words people made a decision to have a child when they believe they were not emotionally or financially ready for it given that as we said generally abortion is forbidden in torah law um, and this is a clear, there's a clear consensus to this, that abortion is forbidden. It is therefore clear that for there, one cannot break any Torah law for financial reasons or for emotional reasons, so long as it doesn't involve severe medical concerns, such as psychiatric concerns. Um, but so long as there are no severe medical concerns, there would be no reason in halacha, in Jewish law, to, there would be no excuse to um, transgress any Jewish law, including that prohibition of aborting a child. Um, now, some sometimes argue that emotional or financial problems can lead to danger, can lead, maybe a person has financial problems or emotional problems, they can be depressed, and severe clinical depression um, can lead to suicide um, 
or um, can lead to some other form of harm um, is a far-fetched argument. Um, in order to be able to transgress a Torah law um, due to a medical concern, there must be a clear and likely medical concern. And so potential emotional or financial problems um, would never serve as an adequate excuse in order to allow abortion under Jewish law. Can I follow up? Let, yes. Um, okay, I, I said careless, and I did mean careless, like maybe they're drunk or something. And in this question, I'm not really asking about abortion, but I'm asking about if getting pregnant under those circumstances is a sin to be looked upon as unethical. Um, that's a good question. I think the question of um, having children and when to have children and when not to have children um, is a great topic. We once did a class on this topic some time ago, but it's definitely the subject of a different class, um, the ethics of having children. Thank you, Cheryl. So now in an instance where people do have serious financial or, or emotional concerns, um, halachic scholars, postgivers they're called, generally agree that what's referring commonly to the morning after pill, um, which takes effect before the pregnancy. It's essentially before fertilization. It's essentially a form of contraception rather than abortion would be permitted. Generally, Jewish law forbids contraception to be used, but permits it to be used in cases of duress or stress. And so therefore, in cases of duress or stress, emotional or financial, one would be allowed to use a morning-after pill, which is essentially a contraception. But once fertilization has taken place, once there is an embryo here, um, unless there is a medical concern, um, either to the mother or we said possibly even to the child, there would not, one would not be able to, according to Jewish law, it would be unethical to perform an abortion. Now, in general, when there is a serious health concern, we always look to, and halacha tells us, that given a medical concern, um, we would be able to transgress or uh, a particular law. We always look to medical experts and medical advice to tell us if a specific scenario is life-threatening or what the prognosis of a specific scenario is. However, it's important also to have a halachic expert with knowledge in the field, both to determine in the gray areas when there are multiple opinions, particularly in complex cases that may have multiple different reasonings or multiple different details in it that could be reasons to argue both ways. Um, one needs an expert that has experience in, the, in this particular field. And one also needs an expert, a halachic expert, or someone with knowledge in the field that also understands the medical situation. Because what often tends to happen is doctors who do not understand halacha, Jewish law, and don't understand Jewish values, often make declarations which are not accurate in halacha. And I once had this. I once was told by a doctor about a hand injury that I had, that it was life-threatening and I needed to do surgery on Shabbos because it was life-threatening. Now, 
I don't need a doctor to tell me to know that it is not life-threatening, that a hand injury is not life-threatening and can wait till Sunday morning um, or Monday morning. Um, but this doctor, that's what this doctor told me. And I suspect not that the doctor was a bad doctor, but simply does not have any appreciation for the value of Shabbos. So therefore makes such a declaration, not that they truly believe that it was, that it was life-threatening and they would get up, um, drop everything in order to go and do this surgery at this moment, but rather they saw no value to Shabbos and therefore they said, oh yeah, it's life-threatening enough not to, to be able to transgress the Shabbos. So it's important to remember that doctors that don't appreciate the Jewish values and the Jewish laws or don't appreciate the Jewish prohibition of generally aborting a fetus may not, may often make a declaration such as there is a danger to the mother or the child will end up a certain way that the doctor may be a good doctor but may, but may not appreciate the halachas, the Jewish values that they are addressing and therefore may not address them accurately. So it's important to always keep that in mind as well. And so hopefully we've understood that um, one is required to abort to save the life of a mother. One is forbidden from performing an abortion um, when there is no serious medical concern. In event where a child will have a serious um, deformity, particularly if a child is, um, if a child will ha has Tay Sachs or some disease for which they um, will likely die, uh, suffer and die very young or um, when there is harm, when the mother will be harmed seriously from the pregnancy, then it is a somewhat gray area, and there one would have to take it in, on a case-by-case -case basis. So once again, our goal over here is not to judge people who have made past decisions um, and to rehash or readdress the past, but to help you understand the Torah position on a modern issue that's hotly debated and give you some limited guidance or some li limited perspective. And it's important to remember um, that anyone considering an abortion um, due to an unwanted pregnancy or due to a medical concern that arose once the pregnancy began um, is, uh, is in, to start with, the mother um, is in a difficult situation, um, either due to the stress and um, emotional concern of an unwanted pregnancy or the stress and emotional concern of medical um, complications that come with a pregnancy to the mother or the child. Um, and so it's important to always respond to them with care, have empathy for them regardless and recognize the difficult situation they are in regardless of the decision they make, whether they follow Jewish values or even if they don't, we still must appreciate the difficult situation they're in and have empathy for their situation. We also have to remember, as we've seen, the Torah values every human being. Every human being is of infinite value, including a mother and an unborn child. But it's not only a mother and an unborn child. Every life, particularly somebody after birth, is an entire world. Somebody who saves a life saves an entire world. And it's important not to get carried away with the life of the fetus and forget about the lives of those who are without, around us who are alive, whom for whom we are required to do everything we can, not only to keep alive, but to help whenever you see another person suffering. And so we should not only focus on this rule, 
this particular rule of abortion, but we also, these, and the particular laws of abortion, but we must focus on life in general and the value of helping a life in general. So I hope this has given you some perspective.